0: Thank you. potential and possibilities discussions with fascinating people designing a better tomorrow for all of us I'm your host Ira Pastor welcome everybody again to another episode of our show bringing you another really fascinating guest today helping to create a better tomorrow for many people today we have the honor of being joined by Dr. Robert Montgomery who is director of the NYU Langone Transplant Institute and chair in their department of surgery where he oversees a diverse team of medical and surgical specialists that provide a wide range of surgery and transplantation services, including those for bone marrow, heart, kidney, liver, lung, and facial transplantation. Uh, Dr. Montgomery received his doctor of medicine with honor from University of Rochester School of Medicine, uh, his PhD in molecular immunology from Oxford, and he completed his general surgical training, uh, multi-organ transplantation fellowship and postdoc fellowship in human molecular genetics at Johns Hopkins, where for over a decade, uh, Dr. Makami also served there as chief of transplant surgery and director of their comprehensive transplant center. Uh, Dr. Montgomery uh, was part of the team that developed the laparoscopic procedure for live kidney donation, uh, a procedure that's become standard throughout the world. Uh, He and his team at Hopkins uh, conceived of the Hopkins protocol for desensitization of uh, incompatible kidney transplant patients, uh, the idea of domino-paired donation, kidney swaps, and he's performed the uh, first chain of transplants Uh, started by uh, an altruistic donor leading teams that performed uh, two-way, three, four, five, six, eight, uh, and 10-way uh, paired donations and open chain donation. Uh, Dr. Montgomery currently uh, has a research focus on, on a range of areas, including stem cell therapies, gene and cell-based therapies in transplantation. Uh, he was recently co-leading clinical trials sponsored by the NIH involving simultaneous donor bone marrow and live donor kidney transplantation. He also runs multiple clinical trials for uh, novel desensitization therapies. And uh, in addition to a wide range of... Uh, Accolades and uh, awards received. Uh, He also was credited in the Guinness Book of World Records with the most kidney transplants performed in one day. Uh, And and on top of all that, he is also a transplant recipient himself. So he's a very unique perspective from both uh, that of a clinician and patient. We're honored to have him with us today. Uh, Dr. Robert Montgomery, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come talk to us.
1: Thank you, Ira. And uh, thanks for that uh, that nice uh, introduction.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's great having you. Um, obviously, the last several months have been quite busy for you, uh, especially uh, in one really hot area, you know, that of xeno which we, we've we seen you all over the press. You know, uh, a couple of months ago, we had uh, David Cooper on uh, from sort of MassGen sort of laying out the uh, the last couple of decades of the development of, of xeno. But, um, you know, you have been at the forefront of the first in terms of the uh, – uh, going into humans with some of this clinical experience. Um, I saw, you know, just last week, actually, in Nature Medicine, you published uh, a piece, Next Steps for Xenotransplantation of Pig Organs into Humans. Uh, can you take us just on a little bit of your uh, perspective from the last several months? Um, uh, your you know, Did you expect Xeno to uh, get on the scene so fast, looking back now, history? And then just a little bit of the learnings from uh, sort of a lot of things going on uh, over 2021 and, and into the current year.
1: Sounds good. So yeah, I mean, look, we we definitely are standing on the shoulders of uh, giants like David Cooper and and the people who have been working very hard at this for, you know, decades now. Um, You probably know that up until very recently, all of the breakthrough work that had been done in xenotransplantation really had been done in primate models. So these are, um, you know, monkeys that are receiving genetically modified pig organs. Um, and again, there's been probably more than 30 years of, you know, studies in, the, in primates that really um, provided um, the background, you know, work that um, led to these recent, um, you know, developments in, in the, the clinical application of xenotransplantation. So um, for about four years now, we've been working on this concept that um, there is an intermediate step between the primate research that's been done and the first in human, living human um, studies that we're all anticipating um, where um, that that giant leap that would be required um, to take this very complex technology um, from animal studies to living humans um, could be bridged. And um, that, that idea was to attempt, you know, in these kinds of high stake studies um, to test the um, whatever, you know, is of interest in this case, uh, a pig organ in a recently deceased human. So you could essentially fail safe um, if there were some untoward event that occurred. um, The recipient in this case of the um, xenograft was already dead. And so, um, you know, the, the impact obviously wouldn't be the same as if it were a living human. And it would, in my opinion, you know, I'm thinking about this when we really started on this journey four years ago, give us the needed um, confidence that this would work in living humans that could tip the balance because we've kind of been at this stage of, um, you know, becoming better and better monkey Doctors basically um, to try to you know perfect this in a imperfect model. Primates are um, very fragile. Um, they um, have some complicated physiology and genetics that actually makes um, transplanting a pig organ into them even more complex than a human um, and you know studying um, primates for long periods of time with um, pig organs is very expensive and again they they just um, seem to you know to succumb to things like dehydration and infections in a way that humans just don't and so I think actually it's it's given us a more Uh, pessimistic view of what the possibilities are for xenotransplantation in humans. And so, you know, testing these in someone who had been declared brain dead, who had wanted to donate their organs, but for some reason their organs were deemed to be unsuitable for donation, um, then would essentially um, donate their body for the purpose of a study of um, in this case um, xenographs although it it's not this concept is not necessarily limited to um, you know testing pig organs sure. we also have intentions of of testing bioartificial organs or organs that are you know um, produced by 3d printing or um, sure. a process where you know an, an animal organ is decellularized and, and then and recellularized with with human cells that's a separate topic but just to you know point out that um, the recently deceased studying um, these kinds of um, you know again high stakes innovations as an intermediate step between animal studies and human studies because we've seen a lot of things either not work in animals or work in animals and then you know, not work in humans. Um And at the end of the day, the best way to to test something that your intention is to take into the clinic and to use as a breakthrough therapy for humans is to test it in humans.
0: Yep. Speaking of uh, of the um, the the living cadaver model for a, a minute, because. And I I also noticed that, you know, quite recently um you published uh in I think it was the Journal of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery, uh also about your experience with another sort of really cutting edge area in this space in terms of um heart transplantation. Uh, In a a model of of donation after circulatory death, not brain death. And I know this, there was a little bit of back and forth and you and Art Kaplan and and the American uh, College of Physicians were were going at it a bit there. But uh, the combination of, okay, you know, we don't have a brain dead subject yet, but we're close to that. Uh, and this is a very critical period. You have novel capabilities now, uh, enhanced uh, knowledge with regard to how to reperfuse organs better than we ever have. Talk a little bit about uh, what's been happening on, on the yeah. uh, donation of a circuit to our death front.
1: I mean, I think that's a, you know, that is a great example why it's so important to develop another source of organs that doesn't include this old paradigm that somebody has to die in order for somebody to live. Yep. because there's a lot of controversy now and really what defines death yep. um and that's really you know without going into a tremendous amount of detail um in this um uh you know somewhat uh, of a, a a new riff on um what's called a donor after cardiac death um which you referred to n r p um that you know surprisingly has become uh, another area of of controversy again in this you know spectrum of between living and death that at times gets um questioned and there are ethical arguments you know about when death has actually occurred Mm -hmm. um and are and the the technology that has allowed us um to do things like put people on um, uh, cardiopulmonary bypass or with a, a procedure very similar to that called ECMO and potentially rescue them from death when they've had a cardiac arrest. Now this is an area of great interest to me because I've had seven you know, potential cardiac deaths that I've been resuscitated from and When you think about it, CPR was developed in the 1960s, and there's been no progress in in trying to resuscitate somebody who has died. And sadly, we're still at a point where only about 10% of the people who um, have a cardiac arrest in the hospital are able to leave the hospital. Um, And so there's, there's increased interest in how do we resuscitate people? How do we try to um, resuscitate the brain, too? Um, and, you know, is there, uh, you know, technology now that's out there that um, w- allo- would allow us to reanimate the brain? So there's going to be a tremendous amount of controversy as some of this technology gets developed and you probably remember hearing about the Yale group in yep. in 2019 when they were you know were able to get some type of neural activity from um, a pig brain that you know basically had been um uh without circulation for 4 hours. Mm-hmm. And again all of these things you know And many things that I've been involved in in my whole career that you mentioned in the introduction were all about trying to increase the number of donors um, that could be available to, you know, prevent the death on the wait list that is um, such, you know, it's the number one unmet need. Um, in transplantation right now is, is organ supply. And only a third of the people who get listed for a life-saving transplant ever make it across the finish line. And so we've got a system that, you know, we've been working on trying to improve, um, but it's kind of a, a broken paradigm, in my opinion. And, and, and that's why things like xenotransplantation and bioartificial organs become so critical because they are, you know, if you will, the, the wind and um, the solar of, of the organ supply, they're the future. They're, they're um, sustainable ways to provide an unlimited supply of organs um, for humans and to prevent this needless death that occurs um, on the waiting list which I could have easily succumbed to. Uh, In a way, I'm sort of, you know, a one in a million example of someone who was able to sort of go through that gauntlet, having all these cardiac arrests and being resuscitated. And it was only just by luck because I happened to have a nurse and a doctor at one point who were with me, um, you know, at a Broadway show when I had extended CPR. And it was only because they were so good at doing it that I'm here today talking to you, and um, you know we can't be in that position where so many people are dying waiting for organs. So there, there's a lot of controversy, um, you know, in uh, what we're currently doing to try to enhance the um, organ supply. I, I personally think it's it's you know it, it's it's kind of in a way. Um, you know, um controversy that is sort of being being started by non-combatants, who are people yeah. who are really kind of not in the fray, but still, you know, it's it's out there, and we have to uh, address it. But boy, uh, to my mind, the best way to address it is to not have to rely on you know some of these in- innovations that are. Kind of, you know, pushing us further and further out on these edges of, you know, what the ethicists will argue one way or the other. Um, And to really just break through into an entirely new sphere where, you know, we're we're really dealing with more than one source of um, organs Mm -hmm. for transplantation.
0: Yeah, I uh, I completely agree with you. That, that, you know that's why you know whether we're we're talking about Zeno or you know I've had folks like Tony Atala on talking about bioprinting and Doris Taylor who's been a friend of mine a long time on the D cell resell front. Um, yeah, I mean I, I think all of these <laughs> uh, venues are, are are just so important. To, um, in lieu of that, though, um, you know hopefully they get here sooner than later. But um, you've been. Equally, you know, aside from sort of building up this amazing clinical experience, um, you've been uh, also working extensively on, you know, what what we'll put in this desensitization uh, basket, desensitization therapies, everything from uh, novel monoclonal antibodies, uh, you've published on splenic irradiation, and then, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, you, uh, you know, you paradigm, you know, this new paradigm of of transplanting bone marrow along with an organ. Talk a little bit about... um, where we are on the desensitization front, what gets you excited, uh, what t- technologies are hot, what you're not yeah. that interested in anymore.
1: So, just you know, for the audience, um, desensitization really what it involves is, um, you know, there are there are essentially two you know important types of incompatibilities that would prevent a donor from being able to donate to you know a recipient. Um, and one is, one of those incompatibilities is blood type. So um, yeah. we know that there are uh, certain blood types that um, cannot, you know, receive an organ from another blood type. And the reason why they can't is because they have antibodies against that other blood type. Basically, so it's all, it's all about antibodies when we talk about incompatibility. Same thing with xenotransplantation. It's, it's antibodies that we have against um, in xenotransplantation sugars that, you know, were lost during evolution that are expressed in pigs, but not in humans. And we have antibodies against those sugars because we tend to make, you know, an immune response against things that are not self, that are not, you know, part of us. Um, and then the other major type of incompatibility um, in transplantation or transplantation between two humans, aside from ABO incompatibility, um, is due to exposure um, previous exposure to other people's tissue. So how could that happen? Well, it can, believe it or not, can happen during pregnancy because um, there's some, uh, you know, leakage um, through the placenta. And so the baby is half mom and half dad. And so mom gets exposed to that half that, you know, is dad and can mount an immune response to that. Now it doesn't really um, have much effect in most cases and you know with the baby but if then mom needs a transplant at some point in the future she could be you know incompatible with her donor another way is if you just get a blood transfusion there are cells and you know aside from red cells white cells that again are foreign tissue and we can develop an immune response it. and then more and more now people are getting second or third transplants and so that's a source of incompatibility. So when I first started being interested in this in the 1990s, there was nothing really that you could do with somebody, particularly who was sensitized to other people's tissue. And there's various degrees of sensitization, but the people who are really sensitized to other people's tissue, they were just sitting on transplant lists for decades and never getting an offer um, because every offer they potentially would get would be incompatible and so this was a completely disenfranchised group of of people um that you know the number of of those individuals on the list has changed and it has to do with how we define them and the sensitivity of the testing but you know it's somewhere um between five and ten thousand people who are waiting for a transplant have a significant degree of sensitization and this limits the possibilities of them getting an organ. So there's two ways to get around that. You can either like directly address the the sensitization problem, um, which is the antibodies that that person harbors, you know, against other people's tissue, and try to remove those antibodies. There's various ways to do that. You can remove them through a process called plasmapheresis, where you you put their blood through a machine that basically cleanses the blood from those antibodies. Mm-hmm. Um, Another way to do it is to, um, if you, you are lucky enough to have a living donor, and like you need a kidney, is to do a swap. So you swap with another pair who also has an incompatibility, either blood type or sensitization. And if if their donor is compatible with you and your donor is compatible with, with them, you can just swap kidneys or, you know, as you mentioned, we do these long chains now that are um, um, uh, of these pair donations and actually, There are 1,000 transplants every year, living donor transplants, that are done by kidney paired donation. This little idea that that we came up with in the early 2000s, we had no idea how impactful that was going to be, is now responsible for 1,000 transplants a year. Having said that, sadly, the number of living, even though we added 1,000 transplants that wouldn't have happened every year, the number of total living donor kidney transplants has not increased. So there's actually been fewer um, compatible uh, living donor kidney transplants. Um, and we don't know why that is, but that's again, a vulnerability, one of the other vulnerabilities that we're facing now with this organ supply. We just, the, re- the only, sadly, the only really significant impact that we've had on the organ supply in the past decade, has been the result of the opioid epidemic. Mm. Um, last year, there were 107,000, mostly young people, who died of drug overdoses. If you can believe that in mm. the United States, and many of their families, you know, um, in that horrible moment of despair, were willing to donate um, their loved one loved ones' organs, or they had had said, you know, in, in life that they wanted to donate their organs. And so we have been able to, um, make use of many of those organs. And, and one way that we really increased, and you may know that that's how I got my heart. Um, the number of, um, those, uh, drug overdose victims who were able to donate is by using he- uh, hepatitis C organs, because 25% mm. of the organs from Drug overdose victims have hepatitis C, and so I took a hepatitis C positive heart, um, and and then took the drugs that we now have very good drugs for hepatitis C, and um, it, for two months, and and you know I, I contracted hepatitis C, but then um, it was um, completely eliminated by these drugs, and so we've made, been able to make good use. But hopefully, you know, if we if it. And, you know, we, we spent over $50 billion last year on addiction um, therapy and, and research. We're going to have the, the equivalent of the airbag, hopefully, at some point, um, that really changed everything in terms of death from motor vehicle accidents. And what we've seen is number of donors from motor vehicle accidents has gone way down. Mm-hmm. And drug overdose victims has gone way up. But at some point with what we're doing, you know, to try to prevent that, hopefully we're going to turn that around. And again, then, you know, where the shortage of organs is gonna become even more dire. Um, And so all of these things are constantly swirling in my mind, you know, I've been in those shoes of having to sit and wait and wondering whether an organ was gonna come in time. And, And, you know, during those many days and years when I knew that I needed it, was going to need a transplant, but wasn't quite sick enough yet. Um, you know, I thought about these things and yep. constantly thinking about how we we need to, you know, face these challenges and to, you know, um, diversify our organ supply, um, much the way we're thinking about global warming and and energy and getting away from, you know, um, fossil fuels, um, and, and having other options. Yeah. Uh, and that's the way we have to think about the organ shortage as well.
0: You know, in, in, um, in the bio, you know, I mentioned that, you know, you, uh, aside from the stem cells and it's when some therapies, you, you also have, uh, a focus on gene therapy. I and, mean, you know, we've, we've done a couple episodes, um, lately on just sort of, the history of gene therapy and how we're sort of we're getting into a point now where okay you know things are things are getting back to normal after a sort of a lag there um any interesting gene therapy related uh technologies I, I know you know we use some of these gene therapies to to modulate the histocompatibility of some of the xeno stuff but anything you're seeing that looks interesting on the gene therapy front in terms of you know dealing with very incompatible organ donors and after a transplant.
1: So, um y- you know, not specifically gene therapy, but there's a new technology that um, you know, is is um is looking very promising on the incompatibility front for the for ABO incompatible health, okay. ABO incompatibility. Um which has to do with the um you know, t- the treatment of the donor organ prior to transplantation. Okay. Um and in this case, you know there there are people who have thought about genetically modifying you know the organ before transplant transplantation you know the kind of the what we've done with um pig organs mm-hmm. um but um one thing that you that, that a technology that has recently been developed can basically enzymatically remove the blood type antigens. Mm from the organ by perfusing, you know, this enzyme through the organ and make every organ blood type O, so the universal donor, um, because there are certain blood types that are really hard to match because of incompatibilities. Sure. Um And so, you know, essentially by perfusing the organ before transplant, removing those blood type antigens, that are expressed on the surface of the cells and organs, you could make every organ blood type O, mm. and you know, and and could be used in anybody. So that's one interesting thing. Now there are you know people who are who are looking at um, genetic modifications, you know, of human organs uh, prior to uh, transplantation. You know, for for my family, um, one of the reasons that I became very interested in gene therapy back in the nineties. Um even before we knew what the gene um the mutation was that's involved in my family that causes heart disease and cardiomyopathy, and why I had to have a heart transplant, why my brother um had a heart transplant why my other- one of my other brothers died, and why my dad died it's all from the same um genetic disorder it's a it's a um mutation it's a very simple mutation it's just it's sort of like you know. If you think about a phone book, there's one phone number in the entire phone book that's wrong. I mean, I know, but nobody thinks about phone books anymore, but we <laughs> used to have phone books, right? <laughs> they, they were gigantic and they used to come to your house. And yeah. I remember carrying those things in everyone, every phone number. And so you could think about with CRISPR technology going in and changing the digit in that yeah. one phone number that made it wrong. So I've had a tremendous interest, you know, um, because of my family and what we've we've been through in gene therapy and, and, um, and spent, you know, time working on a gene therapy solution for a disease called Marfan syndrome. Um, and, um, you know, in coming up with strategies that, you know, potentially back, back then I hadn't even really discovered our mutation, but we know it now. Um, and, There are some companies that are interested in it, it, and I've been approached by companies that are interested in the decedent model as a way of testing gene therapy. Again, you know, another example of sort of a high stakes type of um, uh, complex technology that where an intermediate step between the animal studies and the living human studies could, you know be really critically important in terms of safety so um you know i have a lot of different strings in my life that you know have all kind of come together and in weird ways and and that's one of them and um you know i try to um focus in my research on things that um are important um important to humankind but also important to to me and my family quite honestly um and um you know those things are constantly um on my mind and 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 um you know coming up with new solutions um that are you know not obvious or out there right now is what i constantly am thinking about
0: yeah but i mean um you're the you're the right person to think about them because ultimately you know you're the bridge between <laughs> the technology and 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 the patient. So I mean the fact that you do think of these uh, you know bridge uh, tools, whether you know the living cadaver research or uh, CRISPRing, and no, uh, it's it, it it's uh, it's a wonderful story. Um, right? One one other thing I just want to ask you because I was watching it before um, in the um, the NYU Langone uh, video uh, is a couple of minutes or a little commercial that you're involved in. And one of the things you mentioned there is, is robotics. And, uh, you know, uh, we're not, you know, we're not at the point where we have the uh, the heart transplant robots or the kidney transplant robot yet, but we, robotics are going to be a part of this thing in the future. Um, just to say a few words about some of the, sort of the non-biological tools here as well.
1: Sure. So, you know, um, robotics, uh, you know, in, in surgery, um, are you, you'd be surprised how many operations now are done, um, you know, w- using robots, yeah. um, with with a surgeon um, at a console, not at the bedside. So there's always somebody, you know, next to the operating room table, who's you know assisting and and helping to change instruments and things like that. But the surgeon is in another part of the operating room sitting at a console. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason why, you know, once we have lots of like low level satellites and, you know, ways of, of avoiding, um, you know, delays and in, in, um, that you always see on TV when someone's asking, you know, when a uh, a news reporter is asking somebody a question in Ukraine, you know, there's this delay and that's problematic in surgery, but, you know, I think there are ways that we're developing technologies to eliminate that. You could be kind of anywhere in the world, um, just like drone pilots, you know, and doing operations. Right. Um, so I think, you know, that's not too far away where probably, um, you know, I could be in my office helping to teach, um, you know, kidney robotic, uh, Kidney donation surgery to surgeons in China. Um, so um, that's been a really exciting development. It's you know it's less invasive. It's um, it, it's it, it actually you can see things even better than mm-hmm. during an open operation. Um, but there's also going to be you know tiny little devices and you know robotic. Um, devices that we're going to, in the future, insert into people um, and, you know, to either measure important parameters that, um, you know, we, 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 we were unable to in real time. I mean, I think about myself. So I was the first surgeon in the world to get an implantable defibrillator um, hmm. back in the 80s. And, you know, we thought it was the end of my career because there was mm-hmm. it, it, there was a tremendous concern that just the, th- the devices that we use in the operating room that um, generate electrical noise would cause the, to, the device to go off. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, we overcame that and, and found that that was not the case. But the, the original devices, you know, um, were you know the size of a coke can, or um, and and you know had to be. I my first device was implanted in my abdomen, and I had to have my chest open. Um, and the technology then was you know so new, and um, and now it's been shrunk down to you know basically the size of a silver dollar, um, and. You know, and now, um, you know, a couple of my kids have defibrillators that don't even have leads. They don't, there's no connection to the heart. They just implant it underneath the skin, subcutaneous tissue. And um, so if you think about like, you know, the technology and how it's developed and just in my lifetime and just for my particular problem, it's just mind blowing. I, I mean, it was so limiting back then and now you know, probably you've come in contact with somebody in, in during your day who has a defibrillator probably. Yeah. You know, there's there's they've become so um prevalent. Uh, um at least, you know, um most defibrillators now are pacemakers and defibrillators. Most pay a lot of pacemakers have a differ defibrillation, you know, option. So these devices, um and I think similar to that, you know, we're going to be, of course, everybody knows about Neuralink and, you know, yeah. the idea that things can be inserted in different parts of the body to either affect a change or replace something that is not functioning or to gather information, right? Or to download information. So it's an amazing, exciting future um, that we're going to have to uh, you know, really think hard about and navigate. Um, But, uh, you know, I think with xenotransplantation and being able to replace um, organs when they wear out um, and research that's going on on, you know, the deterioration of the brain and maybe augmentation there, you know, the lifespan of humans, I think, is going to um, really, you know, extend tremendously. And, um, I do envision a future where we can replace things, um, again, but we have, we can't be dependent on other people dying in order to do that. We've got to replace them with something that's renewable. And, um, so this, what we're working on now is just a small part of that future, but it's a, you know, I think an important one.
0: Major part of it, actually. No, it's 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 so impressive. I mean, I, I agree with that with everything you said too about um, how positive it's all looking. Um, right. One last thing, while I have you, because you, you know you just mentioned um, in the example of the Ukraine, can, can you say a few words about your uh, your recent medical missions to the Ukraine? Because they've been yeah. So I'm everything.
1: I'm getting ready to go back there. I I mean, I, you know, again, like I would say that ever since I was um, a young uh, a, a kid, I've always I don't know, been drawn to um, uh, you know uh, things that where I thought there was some injustice or some some need for something to be you know, cared for um, that's kind of been a theme throughout my life and um, and, you know, I think what's happening in Ukraine um, is just it is just uh something that is really very difficult to even imagine you know in the modern day that um you know a sovereign country for no good reason is invaded and and people are killed you know in unbelievable numbers and um and i immediately you know you know felt when um in february when this happened this incredible injustice that i was just drawn to try to go there and do whatever i could to help and so i took my first trip in may without you know kind of a sponsoring organization just a friend um a colleague who's a nephrologist transplant nephrologist in poland and um he and I met um in Poland and then took you know several trains and walked for a while. We had backpacks and and had contacted um you know the largest uh, uh transplant uh group um in in Ukraine and Lviv. And um and we met up with them and and um we spent a week um doing transplants. Um you know in in their hospital there you can imagine that the vast majority of doctors in ukraine now are working on um trauma and casualties um and um you know these horrific injuries that the civilians the children the soldiers have had um i saw just unbelievable things walking through the icus people who were just completely broken physically and mentally um from this uh horror and um and so, you know, sort of like in the, the in the beginning of COVID, when you have when all the medical care attention is being directed towards one thing, um, all everything else suffers, right? So there's a need to try to continue to do the other things that are important, like transplantation, like cancer care, you know, so that people aren't need needlessly dying. So um you know, we we worked with the with this incredible team of uh, surgeons and and physicians in Lviv and and did transplants. And, and then when I got back, I you know um, worked with uh, some wonderful organizations, um, and we've raised money and um, we've got a, sh- a shipment of equipment, operating room equipment that we're sending over. And then I'm going to go back um, in October um, and and do some more work there and it's one of the most fulfilling things i have ever done um and it's um you know it's become such a big part of me now and i think of, of, about my friends there and what they're going through they're all living alone they don't you know they're fam- they've sent their families to other countries and we you know we have this app on our phones when we cross the border and it um locates you know you put your location in and and it draws a circle around you and if there's a missile launch you know it, this alarm goes off it like basically makes you fall out of bed it's so loud mm-hmm. and um and you have to go to a you know a um, shelter and this is what the people are living with you know day to day um so um it's it yeah it's it's something that um you know it's really gotten into me in a deep way um and i'm hoping to be able to do whatever i can to continue to help um the people in that country
0: i uh i, I appreciate you sharing that and um I, it's uh it, it's just so inspirational robert hearing all of your story. I mean, just everything you're involved in on on all these fronts, and um, I, I just really uh, wish you the best with all of it uh, as you continue to to push forward on these boundaries. As you continue to help so many people, not just here in the U.S. but abroad, um, real really a, an amazing story. Um, for For everybody that is going to be listening. Uh, to this particular episode of our show uh, across the various podcast networks who are watching uh, on our YouTube channel. Again, you've been listening to Dr. Robert Montgomery, Director, NYU Langone Transplant Institute, Chair, the Department of Surgery. Robert, again, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your very busy schedule. to Come talk to us for a little while and educate us on these topics. Obviously, thank you for everything you've you've done and continue to do for humanity. And as we say on on our show, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow for so many people out there via what you're doing. It's such an inspiring story, and I really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you, Ira. And thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it as well.